Uh, my name is Jake. I'm part of the team. There we go. Can you hear me now? Yeah? Good? Awesome. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team. Uh, I want to I welcome you here for our first Sunday together. I want to encourage a few things that Heath just announced. Uh, community groups are how we do community around here. And so please, come be a part of a community group. Come say hi to a community group leader. We would love to get you plugged in there. Uh, the second thing is at this time, I'm going to call a bunch of people up on the stage. Uh, and, and we're going to stand in just a moment and read, for, uh, read God's word. Uh, but we're going to first be prayed for. Uh, so I'm going to call a bunch of people up. So if you're one of those people, you can come on up the stage uh, right uh, now. Getting to today and getting to this moment, as you could imagine, uh, was a lot of work. Uh, a lot of work uh, from a lot of people. A lot of work from Joel Sabell. Joel's our worship uh, director. A lot of work from Heath Meikle, who's our church planning apprentice. Uh, a lot of work from our spouses, uh, Maisie, uh, Becky, and Mariko. Uh, today is the result of being sent by a group of elders uh, who aren't interested in just maintaining uh, the status quo, who believe that reaching people in Vancouver uh, with the good news of Jesus is worth uh, sacrificing, uh, taking risk, uh, trusting Jesus with the outcome. Uh, Beyond these elders here, you guys can come on in tight. Beyond these elders here uh, this morning, uh, this wouldn't be possible without a number of organizations uh, and partners supporting us in every which way. And so this morning, we're happy to have uh, Rob Thiessen. We're a Mennonite Brethren Church in British Columbia, so we're happy to have Rob with us uh, this morning. Uh, We've deeply benefited from the support of our denomination, from the support uh, of our uh, conference. So we're glad to have Rob with us. We also have Ron Leonard here uh, this morning. Uh, Ron is a personal mentor, a friend. Uh, Christ City has been a beneficiary of his church planning leadership over the years, so we're glad to have Ron as well too. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to pray, but we also have my dad up here as well too, uh, because in a more foundational, yeah, oh, that's nice. Uh, in, in a more foundational way, uh, this morning wouldn't happen without uh, my parents, and I'm going to cry at this point. Um, and so it's good to have them here this morning. Yeah, I'm going to ask Jeff Dittrich, before I cry, uh, to pray for us. Uh, Jeff is one of our South Vancouver elders. Uh, after Jeff's done praying for us, you can stand for the reading of God's Word. Yeah. Um, the night before Jesus was crucified, he lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Would you join me in prayer? O righteous Father, 
We are yours in Christ. This church is yours. We do your work, seeking your will, all for your glory. Lord God, this is all from you. This is all for you. We humble ourselves before you with thankful hearts for that truth. Lord God, we are thankful for Jake and Maisie. I am so thankful for Jake and Maisie. Thankful for the call that you have given them in their life to go, to make disciples, to plant this church. Thank you for their faithfulness with that call. Thank you for their obedience to that call. In the face of opposition, uncertainty, Lord God, I thank you for their obedience. Would they be built up, Lord God, by your spirit in truth, united in their marriage, and protected to continue to do your work in East Vancouver? And Lord God, I, I, pl- I pray a blessing over their children as well, um, that they would continue to be brought up under your word and cared for by this church as a whole. I share this prayer also for for Becky, Joel, Heath, Mariko, for all that are um, involved in in leading this church, Um, for every person that has been called to be a part of this church. Lord, I, I pray that they would all be in you. And Lord, I thank you for this space. Lord God, this this space comes as an answer to much prayer over a long time, and we give you all glory for that. I pray that your spirit would fill this space, that your spirit would bring many people to you in this space, not just on Sundays, but through the week as other people meet here as well. And Lord God, as I align my my prayer according to Jesus' here, I ask that you would sanctify us in your truth. Lord God, your word is truth, and I pray that your word would be upheld here, that it would continue to be uh, uh, authoritative here, that it would continue to be taught here uncompromisingly, that we would teach and admonish others in all wisdom through your word. Lord God, I, I pray as Jesus did also, recognizing that we are a sent people. And today is is a testimony of that as we plant this church, that we are a sent people into this world to do your work. And so I pray for each person here in this room that has that call to make disciples and to bring the good news to our neighbors. And finally, Lord God, I pray for unity this unity that Jesus speaks of, that, that we may all be one just as you, the Father, are one with Christ, that there would be perfect oneness here for our good, for our joy, for peace, but also, as Jesus recognizes, that the world may believe. And we pray all of this in the holy and authoritative name of Jesus. Amen.
Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, 23 to 25, and chapter 5, 1 to 2. Matthew 4, And he went out throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, and those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. You may be seated. Jesus, we confess this morning uh, that you are Lord. Uh, We confess this morning, Lord, that we come here uh, not knowing entirely what to make of our lives, what to make of our world, what to make of of the place that you've brought us to. We ask, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, speak to us. And we thank you, Lord, that we have this morning uh, the reassurance and the knowledge that when we proclaim your word, you are speaking to us. Lord, give us ears to hear, we pray. In your name, amen. Well, it's exciting to be here. Again, my name is Jake. Uh, It's good to be with you this morning. Part of our regular practice each Sunday morning, in addition to singing uh, and praying, is also spending some time hearing from Jesus as he speaks to us uh, in the Bible. See, we believe, if you're wondering what we believe, uh, we believe that we can hear the voice of Jesus, not just in the parts of the Bible where he's quoted, uh, but in every chapter, uh, in every uh, book uh, that we find uh, in the scriptures. This morning, it just so happens, it just so happens that we're beginning a series where we have perhaps, perhaps the most well-known collection of Jesus speaking in all the Bible. This morning, we're beginning a 10-month series in the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And one of the things I love about the sermon, and there are many things, as you'll find, that I love about the sermon. One of the things I love about the sermon is that however you come here this morning, however you come this morning, uh, the sermon, at least in part, is is familiar to you, I think. Uh, Whether you're here and you're a committed follower of Jesus, Uh, You're here looking for just meaning and purpose or something to do on a Sunday morning. Uh, Maybe you're a a reluctant hostage of your wife, uh, your husband, uh, your your friend who brought you. However you come, my guess is you know at least a bit, a a piece of the sermon. And and if you don't think you do, let let me jog your memory. It's in the Sermon on the Mount that we find uh, Jesus saying things like this. But I say to you, uh, do not resist the one who is evil... But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, right? Turn to him the other also. You've heard that quoted before. Maybe you've had a parent or a teacher recite to you the golden rule. I know I have. As to whatever you wish that others would do to you, right? Do also to them. Whatever you want to be done to you, do to them as well too. There's also the famous, and this is an oft-quoted one, uh, judge not, right? Lest you be judged. However you would describe yourself this morning, The Sermon on the Mount reaches far beyond the bounds of Christianity, 
far beyond the bounds of, of the church. It has influenced our culture a, a, as a whole. Uh, this is true historically as well. Uh, Gandhi. Gandhi. When Gandhi wanted to dialogue more effectively with British colonials and even other Indian Christians, Gandhi took pieces of the sermon, fused it together with the Hindu scriptures, and tried to move the conversation forward that way. Uh, in uh, Nazi Germany, a modified version of the sermon was made available to those who wanted to both follow Hitler and Jesus. Uh, the, sermon on ha- the sermon has been cited by Barack Obama to support his economic policy, quoted on a t-shirt worn by Khloe Kardashian, and tattooed on your neighbor who you didn't know was that into Jesus. The the effect of the sermon goes well beyond the reaches of the church. And unfortunately, some of these uses, and I think misuses, of the sermon throughout the ages all share one fatal flaw. One fatal flaw, and it's this. They all view the sermon as something to be used, manipulated, twisted, and not a message from Jesus to sit under and obey. And if the phrase, sit under and obey, causes you physical discomfort this morning, if any of those words throw you off, let me make you a promise out of the gate. The promise is this. When we read the sermon on Jesus' terms, on the terms that he gives us, we discover that we get something better. We get something better. Something better than a version of the sermon that agrees with what you already believe. Something better than a cool slogan to put on the back of our cars or tattoo on our bodies. Something better than just another philosophy to discuss endlessly with your friends. When we read the sermon on its own terms, on the terms it comes to us, we discover that we get something better. And to discover what that better thing is, here's how I'm going to introduce us to the sermon this morning. First is this. I want us to begin by looking at the preacher. The preacher. Just who is this Jesus who is speaking to us? From there we'll move to the people. Who are the people who the sermon is for before finally, thirdly, looking at the point? What is this better thing that the sermon was preached for? So the preacher, the people, the point, they're all P's. I apologize right now, uh, but that's how it's going to go. So first, the preacher. Just who exactly is this Jesus who is speaking to us in the sermon? I want to suggest that I think this is the most important question about the sermon. I think this is the most important question we can ask about the sermon. Who is this guy, much like you're asking right now, who is this guy who is preaching to us? Who who is this man who is speaking these words? Right? If a telemarketer calls you, this week I got like a few of those robocalls, like one after the other, like three in a row, right, that all don't begin in English. Right? I got three of those in a row. If that person calls you, what do you do? You, you hang up, right? You're not like, oh, what is this new news? Please tell me more. Like, nobody is doing that unless you're doing that, which is fine. <laughs> but, but, but depending on who's speaking, we listen more attentively, right? If the prime minister calls you, and I don't care what your politics are, uh, you're at least listening for a little bit. Right? Maybe some of you longer th- than others. Who's speaking to us makes all the difference in the sermon. Who is this Jesus who has ascended this mountain and is now sitting down, opening his mouth, we read, and teaching and speaking? 
I want to suggest this morning that Matthew wants us to see three things that lead to one big thing about Jesus' identity. Three things that lead to one big thing about Jesus' identity. And the first thing that he wants us to see is this. Jesus. Jesus is the true lawgiver. Look at Matthew 5, 1 to 2 again with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, let me encourage you. We have Bibles at the back. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, take it, keep it. That's our gift to you uh, as you go. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 2, it says this. Read it again with me. You can pull up on your phone or in paper. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, to you and me, right, reading this, what Matthew has just written here, uh, simply sounds like he's just recounting events, right? Jesus goes up on a mountain, he sits down, he opens his mouth to teach, right? It's not unlike, like, Jake goes to the mall, buys two big bag of kernel popcorn, and, like, eats both bags in one night, right? That's just a hypothetical situation, didn't just happen. Uh, But I want to suggest that Matthew is doing more than just recounting events, He's doing more than just just telling a a history. Remember, Matthew is speaking to a people with a very different imagination than you and I have, right? First century Jewish people think about things and are expecting things a little bit differently than you and I think and expect things. What would have been obvious to Matthew's first readers, and in fact it would have been on big, glaring, like neon lights, is this connection that Matthew is trying to draw between Jesus and Moses. Jesus and Moses. And if you don't see that, let me explain it. In the first four chapters of Matthew, Matthew has been working very hard, like a good gospel writer, and he has again and again and again and again, like almost ad nauseum, explaining the connections between Jesus and Moses. Matthew will show us that both Jesus and Moses fled their place of their birth only to return later at God's direction. Uh, Both Matthew and Jesus uh, were tempted in the wilderness. Sorry, Jesus, uh, sorry, Moses and Jesus, not Matthew and Jesus. Moses and Jesus tempted in the wilderness. Both Moses and Jesus passed through the Jordan. Again and again and again, Matthew's making the point. Jesus and Moses, there's a connection here. And all these little, little connections have been driving up until this big connection in Matthew chapter 5. Look at this. Moses went up on the mountain once to share God's purposes for his people in the form of the law. And now Matthew wants us to see, just like Moses, just like Moses, Jesus is going up on a mountain to share with us, for those people then and for us today, what the law has always been pointing to, what God's revelation has always been aiming towards. Matthew wants us to see in Jesus, in the sermon, who is the better and truer lawgiver. He wants us to see the one who, like Moses did all those years ago, shares with us not just random thoughts, not just ramblings, but revelation from God. That's what Matthew is driving to. Right before the sermon in Matthew 4, we read a a summary statement of the message that Jesus was preaching at that time. In Matthew 4, verse 17, it says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we could summarize Jesus' message at that time, it's this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
What follows then in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching his disciples, teaching all who would listen what it looks like, how one acts in this kingdom. What is this new law that God's kingdom people are to be governed by? That's what's happening in the sermon. Which leads us to the second thing Matthew wants to show us about Jesus' true identity. The second thing is this. Jesus is not only the true lawgiver, Jesus is also the true teacher. Again, back at Matthew 5, 1 to 2, we read there, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, notice that, when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Two things we should point out. Jesus goes up on this mountain, and he sits down. Sitting down in this setting is the posture of a teacher. He's not just tired or, like, lazy. He's sitting down as a teacher in this setting. The early readers would have noticed he's both the lawgiver and the teacher here. But what, what surprised them was where Jesus was sitting. See, in Jesus' day, if you wanted to teach about the revelation of Moses, the Ten Commandments, right, the law, you would go to the synagogue and you would sit on the Moses seat. And from the Moses seat, you would explain uh, the scriptures that Moses had received, right? You would act and speak on the authority borrowed from, from Moses, right? Matthew makes reference to this practice later in his gospel when he quotes Jesus as saying, the scribes and the Pharisees, where do they sit? They sit on Moses' seat. Uh, So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Notice, though, in our passage, Jesus isn't anywhere near the synagogue. He's not anywhere near uh, the Moses' seat. He's just sitting down on a hill. And that's not by accident. That's actually on purpose. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the type of teacher who, who does not need to borrow from the authority of Moses does not need to borrow uh, from Moses' street cred. does not need to get in the door using Moses' name. Jesus, Matthew wants us to see, is one who comes to us and came to them and speaks on his own authority, on the basis of his name, on the basis of who he is. Matthew's inclusion then of, and he opened his mouth and taught them, which sounds funny, right? It's not so that we know that Jesus wasn't a ventriloquist, right? That's not what's happening uh, there. This is this common idiom, expression, uh, used to describe the beginning of of a formal time of teaching. So Jesus will open his mouth at the beginning of the sermon, and he will close his mouth. He'll be finished at the end of the sermon. It would also have reminded uh, Matthew's readers immediately of a promise God made to his people uh, uh, many, many years ago. In Matthew 18, 18, sorry, Deuteronomy 18, 18, uh, we read this. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The prophet who would be like Moses, a lawgiver, a teacher only better, was also believed to be a king. A king. See, Moses not only gave the people the law, and this is a bit of a history lesson, if you know the story, Moses was also the liberator of the people of God. Because of the miracles wrought by God, brought on by God, plagues, and all sorts of things, Moses led God's people out of captivity, out of Egyptian slavery. He was their rescuer, their their savior. And now, again, Moses wants us, sorry, Matthew wants us to see those M names, right? 
A truer and better king has come in Jesus. Except this time, not just a king for the Israelites, not just a king for the Jews, but a king for all people. What we'll discover throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is a king over a kingdom uh, that is not drawn down ethnic lines, uh, as proven by our gathering this morning. A kingdom that you cannot be born into naturally. Rather, it is a kingdom you enter as you allow King Jesus, by his Spirit, to change you on the inside. Jesus is the king over a new people from every nation, from every ethnicity. And you should ask at this point, in view of all this Bible information I just downloaded on you, and it was a lot, let's admit it, it was a lot, in view of all of this information I just downloaded on you, who does Matthew think Jesus is? Right? Like, who does he think he is? Who does Matthew think Jesus is to impose all these titles on him? Jesus, the true lawgiver. Jesus, the truer and better teacher. Jesus, the true king. Jesus, who can speak divine words, right? Jesus, who can tell us the true end to which God's law always pointed. Jesus, who would stand over and above a new kingdom as a new king. Who who does Matthew think Jesus is? See, all of these titles are intended to compound one on top of the other again and again and again and again until we're left with one inevitable conclusion, one amazing conclusion, one beautiful conclusion. Matthew, without a shadow of a doubt, believes Jesus to be God. Without a shadow of a doubt, believes Jesus to be God. And I think the first listeners of the sermon did too. And if not, they at least knew there was something different about Jesus. We see this as Matthew describes the scene at the end of Jesus' sermon, Matthew seven twenty-eight. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He's not just another teacher, not just another guru, not just another self-help author. Jesus teaches with an authority, not like the scribes of their day, not like the scribes and the teachers of our day. Who we believe Jesus to be, hear me, Christ City, changes everything about how we read the sermon. Every single thing changes. Authority is a swear word in our culture, is it not? It is a swear word. I, I might as well say the F word up here. I won't. Don't worry. But authority uh, is a swear word in our culture. Uh, I hate it. You hate it. Uh, we don't like it when someone asserts it over us. We don't like it when our authority is challenged. And so we run from it. We are allergic to authority. And the scariest idea at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is that, and this is so scary, is that perhaps... You and I don't know what's best. Perhaps we don't know what's best. Perhaps we need someone to teach us, to tell us, certainly not me, but someone like Jesus, Jesus who is God, just what it means to be truly human. What it means to truly flourish. What it means to be a happy citizen of the city of Vancouver. Matthew will go to great pain to show us that Jesus, Jesus did not think himself merely a lawgiver or just a teacher. 
or simply another king, another politician. Jesus himself thought that he was one with God. When I was 16 years old, when I was 16 years old, I had a leader at my church ask me this very question. Jake, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And he gave me three options. He says, Jake, either Jesus is is a lunatic, he's crazy, right? He's a liar, right? He's just lying about all of this because he wants, I don't know, something, or he's Lord. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. The author C.S. Lewis, in his typical English fashion, uh, puts it very bluntly in his book, Mere Christianity, sort of the options we're left with. He says this here. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense. But his being a great human teacher, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor fiend, And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And so, Christ, today I ask you this morning, who do you believe Jesus to be? Who who do you think this preacher is? However you answer the question this morning, there's some good news in this. He's a liar, you might say. He's a lunatic, you might say. He's Lord, you might say. The good news is that this sermon was preached for everyone. If you're here this morning, this sermon was preached for you. We turn now from the preacher to the people. In our reading this morning, did you notice that? We hear that because of the miracles Jesus is doing, all of Syria is coming to him. His fame is spreading, right? He has like a thousand Twitter followers now. He's growing in momentum, right? Jesus' name is getting out there. He's getting big. And Jesus, seeing the crowds, we read, he goes up on the mountain and his disciples came to him. Now, there have been some who've suggested that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is just preaching to like Christians and like his apostles and those really close to him. But, but I think what's actually happening here is something much more bigger. Uh, much more uh, inclusive, if you will. You see, if we read the end of the sermon, we discover that not only were the disciples astonished, but we read in Matthew 7 that the crowds were astonished as well. Uh, Which leads me to believe that during the Sermon on the Mount, we can throw this on the screen, there were these concentric circles of commitment. These concentric circles of commitment during the sermon. Right near to Jesus, we are told, are his uh, disciples. His disciples, right? This word for disciples in the language that the Bible was written in, the New Testament was written in, uh, is this word for disciple that could be taken either as somebody who is deeply committed to Jesus or as somebody who's really just kind of interested in Jesus. And for now, in this moment, these disciples are deciding if they want to apprentice themselves to Jesus. They want to follow him. It would have included these people curious about Jesus, but also those deeply committed. Beyond these disciples, though, we see are the crowds. Now, the crowds 
are a very interesting character in Matthew's gospel. Uh, the crowds love a few things. The crowds love a good miracle. The crowds love a good miracle, right? You do a miracle, crowds are like, we're there, right? We're, we're with you, let's go, let's go join in on that, right? Uh, they even love a good teaching, right? The crowds even experience, to some degree, uh, these, these miracles. But because the crowd runs on this, this mob mentality, this mob mentality, and has a specific view of the person that they want to champion, uh, when that person no longer fits their stereotype anymore, uh, the crowds turn on Jesus. The crowds turn on the disciples. They are fickle. One day, the crowd will celebrate Jesus as the coming king. Uh, The next day, the crowd will turn on him and demand that Jesus be executed. Uh, At one point, Jesus looks at the crowd, and where you and I would have been like, get out of here, crowd. Like, like you're not helping anyone. Uh, Jesus looks at the crowd, and Matthew says that Jesus feels sorry for them. They are like sheep without a shepherd. I want to suggest to you this morning that to find yourself in the crowd, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, is not where you want to be. It's not where you want to be. Uh, Over the next few months, you may choose to stay in the crowd. Uh, The crowd listens in as a a casual observer, uh, but the crowd never thinks Jesus is talking to them. Uh, They're just here for the show. They're just here to see what happens. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? What's he about? Instead, the crowd keeps Jesus at arm's reach. And if Jesus says something you like, yeah, let's keep on going with this. Where to next? But the moment Jesus defies expectations, says something weird, right? Says something hard. You'll be the first to say, crucify him as you walk out the door. Or you can come to the sermon as a disciple. Remember, a, a disciple here is not necessarily somebody who's totally bought into Jesus. A disciple in this context isn't actually entirely sure what to make of Jesus. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you don't know what to make of Jesus. Maybe you're not sure what to do with Jesus. A a disciple is plagued by this thought and can't shake this thought. What if, what if what he's saying is true? What if what he's saying is true? And I want to invite you this morning If you're not a follower of Jesus, there is no better way to find out what Jesus is all about than by joining us as we listen to him speak to us as the Son of God in the Sermon on the Mount, as we take the posture of disciples. Because, and this leads to the other thing we should note about the people who are listening in on the sermon, we all desire a better story. We all desire a better story. The people listening in Jesus' day We're in the midst of a story needing a resolution. The children of Abraham, those called out as a nation, right? From Egyptian captivity, wandering for a bit, then under Babylonian captivity, and now at the time of this, under Roman captivity, paying taxes to Caesar under the thumb of someone different than the one true God of Israel. They were in the middle of a story needing a resolution, needing closure. And their prophet spoke of a Messiah, A Messiah who would come and make just every injustice. Make right every wrong. Make whole. And that's a word we'll encounter a lot in the sermon. Make whole all who are broken. That's the better story the disciples desired. What about you? Jesus' message of his kingdom will fall on deaf ears 
if you are fine this morning with the kingdom you've got, with the kingdom you've built for yourself. A new kingdom uh, does not need to break in if the old one is working, right? But, and this is just statistically speaking, there's not many of us here this morning who think the kingdom we've built for ourselves is working. The people on the sermon of the, in the Sermon on the Mount is all of us. But it's especially for those looking for a different sort of king, a different sort of kingdom, a better story to find themselves in. A story with a better beginning, better middle, and better end. Which leads us to the point of the sermon. What is this better thing the sermon was given to accomplish? What is this better thing? The sermon promises nothing less, nothing less than to completely transform us. Than to completely change us. To transform us into the people we were created to be. This transformation, though, hinges, hinges on what we've seen so far today. It hinges on us reading the sermon as if Jesus is God and is speaking to us with divine authority. This transformation hinges on us reading it as people who are not simply the gawking crowds looking for more magic tricks, more sideshows, but those who sit near to Jesus listen to his voice as disciples. It hinges on you and I acknowledging that we are in need of a better story. A story with a better beginning, middle, and end. A story that we cannot create ourselves. See, the sermon, and I hate to burst your bubble, the sermon is not interested in giving you more fodder to use in your personal causes. It's not interested in that. Uh, It's election season. The sermon is not interested in being chopped up to get the Christian vote. It's not interested in making you think that Jesus was a good guy. If you leave today thinking Jesus was a good guy, you've missed the point. It's not interested in making you think that Jesus was just a wise teacher. The sermon was preached by Jesus for transformation. Transformation. The sermon was preached for change. The sermon was preached that you and I might obey it and do it and act on it. To understand the sermon, and I'm closing with this, don't worry, I'm almost done. We must, one last time, look at how the sermon ends. See, Jesus ends the sermon by telling a story or a parable. And he tells a story about a man who built his house on the rock, and a man who built his house on the sand. A man who built his house on the rock, and a man who built his house on the sand. Matthew 7 says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I want to end with a comment made by one Bible teacher, Scott McKnight. He writes this, The ending of the sermon provides a fundamental clue on how we are to read the sermon. Jesus ends the sermon by calling people to obey what he has taught. The entire Sermon on the Mount, the entire thing, our next 10 months, drives home one haunting question. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? 
Let me invite you to join us as we read the sermon on its own terms. The promise, the payoff, nothing less than the transformation we long for. Nothing less than the transformation we need. Would you stand with me now as we respond as a church? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.